History is not like something like math. It's something that can have potentially many right answers and many different perspectives and many different ways to look at things. And what that means is sometimes when you're taking a tour through the past, the guide that you have at the time is key. And you can take the same tour multiple times, but if you have a different guide, they'll point out different things, emphasize different things. How often have you read two different books on the same historical event and gotten different perspectives? The perspective of the storyteller matters. Whether you like history or not, if you care about things like bravery and wisdom and passion and larger-than-life characters and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you've come to the right place and, and, and a chance to get a perspective from a different kind of historical tour guide. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, a martial artist, a philosopher, and it provides a very different sort of tour guide through the past than you normally encounter. In this tour, he'll be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Let's go say history on fire. Welcome to part three of a four-part series on the life of Lakota leader Crazy Horse, and more in general about the conflict between the Lakota people and the United States. We pick up the story in the latter part of the 1860s. At some point at an unspecified date between 1865 according to some estimates and 1868 according to others, Something happened that contributed to the growing legend of Crazy Horse. The Oglala, which were the subdivision of the Lakota which Crazy Horse belonged, had decided to nominate new leaders among the younger generation. And the way they were going to go about it, they were going to hand, as a kind of symbol of leadership, to hand to this handpicked man uh, some shirts, that were made of mountain sheepskins that had been painted with special colors. These shirts were to be owned by the tribe and could be recalled at any moment. So when they decided to go through this ceremony, what happened is that the Akichita, the Akichita was the, um, the warriors in charge of keeping order around camp. You can think of that almost as a tribal police in a way. They would go pick one of the candidates and bring them to this central tipi that was left open so that everybody in the village could see what was going on. Among the men they chose, there was American Horse, who was the son of uh, a previous leader. They chose Young Man Afraid, who similarly was the son of a previous leader. Uh, another man named Sword, same story. The expectation was the fourth one, they were going to pick four men, and the expectation was that the fourth man would be another son from a famous chief from a prestigious family. You know, in Lakota society, theoretically speaking, personal achievement counted more than which family you were from, but clearly that wasn't always the case. 
You know, the fact that the first three all came from well-connected families speak volumes about this. And yet, when it time came to pick the fourth one, the Akichita grabbed Crazy Horse and led him forward. Crazy Horse came from a family that really lacked any renown or wasn't even close in status to the other. So everybody let out a huge cheer since they knew that Crazy Horse had earned his position through his own action more than anybody else there. So then the four young men sat down, they smoked the pipe together, which was kind of a ceremonial action that took place. You know, the smoking of the pipe is one of the things that you find throughout the culture of the tribes in the Great Plains, both in a religious context, in a socio-political context. But actually, I'm making these distinctions. Lakota people probably wouldn't. You know, the this event is not really seen as something separate from the sacredness of religious ceremonies. You know, to them, they viewed it as a whole in a way. In any case, they sit down, smoke their pipe, and then the elders in the tribe gave them a lengthy speech about their responsibility. The idea was that from now on, they could not leave any room in their heart for jealousy. They could not get into fights with other members of the tribe. In the words of the elders, they said, even when your own brother falls at your feet mortally wounded, you're still supposed to remain calm. Same thing, if your wives sleep with other men, you are to put those considerations aside and think for the welfare of the tribe first, putting your own selfish interests aside. In the words of Joseph Marshall, Joseph Marshall is a Lakota author who wrote a book about Crazy Horse, and he described these, um, uh, the duties of uh, these four leaders that were, were picked up in very eloquent fashion. So I'm going to quote from the speech that Marshall attributes to the elders of the tribe. To wear the shirts, you must be men above all others. You must help others before you think of yourself. Help the widows and those who have little to wear and to eat and have no one to help them or speak for them. Don't look down on others or see those who look down on you. And do not let anger guide your mind or your heart. Be generous, be wise and show fortitude so that the people can follow what you do and then what you say. The idea was that upon becoming, upon being picked for this high office, you didn't really belong to yourself anymore, you belong to the people. You, uh, all your actions should be uh, to the service of the tribe. And so this was a, a moment in which Crazy Horse fame, his fame as a warrior, all his actions that have been honored somewhat more informally around the tribe are recognized on a fo more formal level. And he's somewhat reluctantly, because, you know, he never wanted really to be a leader. He didn't claim to be a chief, neither wanted to be. But somewhat reluctantly, he's pushed into the spotlight to take a more direct leadership role. While this is happening, other changes are about to happen in his life. His family decided that he had stayed single for too long and it was time for him to take a wife. So they started talking with the family of a Lakota woman named Black Shawl. Her family approved of the match, but it seemed like Crazy Horse was a little less than enthusiastic about it. He agreed. He said, sure, I will, but he wasn't exactly 
jumping up and down in anticipation. But he will not have to marry her yet, because even though she will end up living into her 80s, her health had always been frail, and at this time she was dealing with some respiratory illnesses. So they decided to defer the wedding until after she recovered. In the meantime, Crazy Horse went back to doing what he loved most, which is fighting against the enemies of the Lakota people. In this case, since they are not really fighting against the United States for the time being, following the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, this meant fighting against other tribes, such as the Crow, the Shoshone, Pony, and so on. In this one occasion, Crazy Horse and one of his friends named He Dog were picked to lead a raid against the Crow. They were handed these uh, staffs that were supposed to be very ancient, that they were wrapped in the skin of wolves and they were supposed to be some like three to four hundred years old dating back from the time when the ancestors of the Lakota people still lived in Minnesota in the woodlands. So they were kind of symbol of leadership that Hidog and Crazy Horse carried during this fight. And this was another way in which Crazy Horse was recognized as having a leadership role by this time. And he and Hidog were peak because uh, they embodied what a young Lakota warrior was supposed to be about more than just about anybody else in their generation. Around this time, Crazy Horse took a break from his uh, intertribal fighting, and instead he joined um, a war party, going to check out what was going on around Fort Laramie. Because the rumors had been flying around that there were a group of uh, unhappy settlers in Wyoming were mad with the 1868 Fort Army Treaty and they wanted to scout the land around, some of the land that was recognized as belonging to the Lakota and this is something that the Lakota didn't appreciate very much. They say, hey, these are our hunting territories, um, these people should stay out of them. So they went around Fort Laramie. They didn't get into any big battle or anything, but Crazy Horse did get into a, a small fight. A civilian named George Harris had the bad idea to pick this particular time to go out hunting ducks, and this turns out to be a particularly bad idea because George Harris will be one of the few white Americans at this time who will run into Crazy Horse and leave to tell the story, which sounds sweet, except that he's gonna leave to tell the story with one leg less because what's going to happen is that Crazy Horse is going to promptly shoot him, shattering his ankle, which will lead to eventually uh, his leg being amputated. While Crazy Horse was amusing himself in, with all this fighting, the realization was dawning among growing numbers of Lakota that the days of the old life, of the buffalo hunting days, may be numbered. News arrived from the south that the Southern Cheyenne, the Cheyenne were divided in two groups, the Northern Cheyenne camping with the Lakota and in the Northern Plains, and the Southern Cheyenne. The Southern Cheyenne had been defeated in the South, and to make things even worse, there were buffalo hunters who had moved into the area. These were Americans who came in carrying repeating rifles that were much more effective and they had uh, telescopic sights and they were able to kill hundreds of buffaloes in a single day. 
And this was really bad news, because these hunters who upon coming in, they could slaughter entire herds in a day's work. The skins of the buffalo were... Well, in some way, there are two technological developments that make this possible. One is the repeating rifles that will make their ability to kill many animals in a single day dramatically increased. And the other is the fact that as the railroad was expanding, this meant that buffalo hunters could relatively easily take the buffalo hides after killing them and rather than having to carry them over really long distances in order to send them east, they could get to the closest train station and have them sent really fast into the east. And from there they became part of a worldwide market. The skins of the bison became um, gun belts for British soldiers in India, they became part of industrial machines in England, they became part of furniture in New York apartments. I mean, they were sold all over the place. And this was obviously very bad news for the Lakota, who depended on the buffalo for their livelihood. The army couldn't be any happier about it. They felt that the, the buffalo hunters were sort of agents of the free market, they were, who were doing the job of defeating Indian for them. Because obviously, beating people in battle is not the only way to beat them. If you starve them, if you destroy their food supplies, you got your job done. And that's what these guys were doing. So at this time, some Lakota leaders decided it may be a good idea to go to Washington to discuss things with the American government. Crazy Horse wants nothing to do with it. He feels like there's nothing to discuss. This is our land and we're going to keep it. And any attempt to come in here means war. What's left to discuss? But other leaders, such as Red Cloud and a few others, thought that it may be a good idea to meet with the representatives of the U.S. government. In the meantime, Crazy Horse and D-Dog led another big raid against the Crow. They carried with them spears that were supposed to be driven through sashes that they carried, which would pin them to the ground. Why would they do that? The idea was that unless a friend would free them from the spot where they would pin themselves to the ground through the sash, they would, uh, they would never retreat. They would fight to the death. It was kind of a symbolic thing that was, I wouldn't say super common, but it did happen in the culture of quite a few plain Indian tribes. You know, you do this thing where you throw the spears into the ground, acknowledging I'm not retreating past this point. I'm going to keep fighting until I either defeat my enemies or a friend come to rescue me by taking out the spear and letting me off the hook. So that's what Crazy Horse and the dog did. This particular battle became known as the fight when they chased them back to camp. This was one of the great battles that the Lakota waged against the Crows uh, at the very beginning of the 1870s. It took place in May 1870 and right next to modern-day San Xavier in Montana. The battle began with Crazy Horse and his mentor, High Backbone, showing off, really, because that's what they were doing, by slowly walking their horses in full sight of the Crow village to just allow them to drink from the river. This is usually not the way you start a battle. You start by being sneaky, you start with a surprise attack. 
these guys just show up and water their horses within sight of the crow village, basically saying, we're here guys, whenever you're ready, let's get on with this. Hundreds of crows got on their horses. In the chaos that followed, the Lakota were able to steal a lot of horses from the crow. And once they got enough, they decided, well, did a good enough job, so they turned around and tried to take the horses back to their own camp. But the crows obviously gave chase. And the crows really weren't going to give up about this. They followed the Lakota for many miles. Um, both groups ended up traveling through the place that would become the site of the Little Bighorn battlefield six years later during the course of this running fight. Eventually, just as when the Lakota horses were getting tired, another group of Lakota joined in and helped them fight off the crows. A crazy horse managed to kill an enemy during this battle, and the rest of the Lakota, with crazy horse in tow, they turned around and managed to make their escape with many, many horses. While this was going on, uh, Red Cloud, with a few other leaders, were taking the necessary steps to head out and visit the American president in Washington. Around this time, Crazy Horse had done something that's going to cost him very big. He had started a secret relationship with Red Cloud Niece, that same black buffalo woman that we have mentioned in episode 2. Or was it episode 1? At some point, we mentioned it in the past. Now, black buffalo woman was married to a man named No Water, and had three kids with him. There was already tension between No Water and Crazy Horse, because No Water was a follower of Red Cloud, and No Water was very much part of those Lakotas who were willing to um, negotiate with the Americans, whereas Crazy Horse was much more... He felt there was no need to negotiate with the Americans, the only need was to fight to hold on to their land. So politically they viewed things a bit differently. And this rivalry was not made easier by the fact that Crazy Horse ended up having a relationship with No Water's wife. He Dog, who was one of Crazy Horse's friends, said that he had paid attention to Black Buffalo Woman for quite a while. And according to some versions, No Water was a big drunk who drank too much and Black Buffalo Woman wanted out of the marriage. So what happens is that while No Water is escorting Red Cloud on his first leg to the journey that Red Cloud will take in going to Washington, while he's gone, Black Buffalo Woman and Crazy Horse elope. They go together on this, uh, during this trip to fight against the crow, along with many other people, and they kind of took a big chance because even though in theory, Lakota women were free to divorce as they wished. Often there were fights surrounding divorces or cases of eloping. So theoretically they weren't breaking laws, but the reality is that often this led to some tension. And also Black Buffalo Woman made a mistake, because as she wanted to divorce, she should have said so. The fact that she left with Crazy Horse without it being explicitly a divorce was a little more complicated. In any case... No Water comes back home, finds his lodge empty, and gets quite mad when he hears the news. During this time, Crazy Horse and Black Buffalo Woman are visiting uh, another Lakota village, and in this moment, Crazy Horse is in the teepee, sitting between a couple of his friends, a man named Touch the Clouds, 
which is an appropriate name considering that this guy was one of the tallest Lakotas to ever lived. Uh, some of the reports, which may be exaggerated, but I'm not sure, they reported the guy was close to seven feet tall. And another man named Little Big Man, who, as we're going to see, is going to play a crucial role later on in Crazy Horse's life. No water arrived in that same camp at night with a few of his friends, and he promptly went to visit one of his relatives, a man named Bad Heart Bull. Incidentally, Bad Heart Bull is the artist that, if you look at the images on the History on Fire podcast website for um, episode 3 and 4, they will be original images by Bad Heart Bull will depict Crazy Horse during the Little Bighorn Battle and later uh, the death of Crazy Horse. In any case, No Water shows up goes to visit his relative Bad Heart Bull and say, hey, I happen to need a handgun because I want to go hunting. Now, the fact that he, no water, was late into the night, was asking for a handgun because he wants to go out duck hunting with a small caliber handgun sounded weird, but Bad Heart Bull decided not to ask any question and handed him the gun. So at this point, No Water went to the teepee where Crazy Horse was staying, opened the flap, walked in, and said, My friend, I have come. I always feel weird when people say, My friend. Anytime somebody say, My friend, I always feel like they are trying to screw me over in multiple ways. Maybe because I read the stories about Crazy Horse's life too many times, and this my friend echo in my brain as this is the sign of bad things are about to happen. But in any case, after saying, my friend, I have come, no water lifts his handgun, and uh, Crazy Horse immediately jumps up trying to pull out his knife to fight, but Little Big Man holds him back, trying to prevent an escalation, well, too bad that nobody's holding back no water, who lifts his handgun and shoots Crazy Horse straight in the face. He shot him below the left nostril, breaking his upper jaw as the bullet eventually exited through the neck at the base of the skull. Crazy Horse promptly fell forward unconscious. Black Buffalo Woman ran off, escaping through the back of the teepee. Touch the Clouds jumped up and stopped No Water from trying to shoot Crazy Horse again or doing more damage. So No Water turns around, ran off from the teepee, tell his friends, I just killed Crazy Horse, we need to go, we need to go. And they immediately ran quickly to a nearby camp where No Water's brothers were staying. No Water had two brothers named respectively Black Twin and White Twin, who were part of this subgroup of the Oglala named the Bad Faces. Well, they get to this camp, and again they say, hey, I killed Crazy Horse. So Black Twin said, don't worry. Uh, I quote the words attributed to him. They say, come and stay with me. And if they want to fight us, we will fight. So Black Twin sets up a sweat lodge ceremony to purify his brother from the killing, and they get ready to fight Crazy Horse's people. Quite a few of Crazy Horse's friends want war. They want to go after No Water and these people. In the words of He Dog, for a while it looked like a lot of blood would flow. However, in the days to come, when it becomes clear that Crazy Horse may actually survive, his friend Touch the Clouds tried to convince him to let Black Buffalo Woman go. 
say, look, if we keep it here, you know, all hell is going to break loose. We, we're going to have an internal war, Lakota against Lakota. Nobody wants this. So after much diplomacy, at some point, no water will, through intermediaries, he'll send three horses to Crazy Horse, including his best horse. And some of Crazy Horse's friends accept the horses on his behalf. Once you accept the horses, you're basically saying, I'm going to let this thing go. And speaking of letting go, Crazy Horse agreed to let Black Buffalo Woman go on one condition, and that would be that no water could not punish her in any way for her eloping. So they agree. Several months later, you know, Crazy Horse took a long time to recover, because as you may imagine, taking a bullet straight in the face is not the kind of thing that you can recover from in just overnight. And a few months later, Black Buffalo Woman gave birth to a daughter, and everybody noticed that this daughter was considerably lighter skinned than their previous three kids. So quite a few people suggest that this may have been Crazy Horse's daughter. This, however, is the last that we hear of Black Buffalo Woman. We don't really know what happens in the rest of her life. She kind of exits out of Crazy Horse's life, and that's the last we hear of her. Now, if things weren't bad enough yet, now some of the elders in the tribes approach Crazy Horse and they tell him that he has to give up the shirt that he had been given uh, for his um, when they acknowledge him as a leader in this ceremony that I mentioned earlier. He had to give that up because he had been involved in an internal fight. He had created a tension within the tribe, so that was that was done. He he was uh, he was kind of taken out of office. The result of this is that many Lakota are kind of disgusted by the internal fighting taking place, and they just drop the institution altogether. This idea of this, the four new leaders, this and that, that goes out the window, along with the moment that Crazy Horse accepts to give back his shirt. Uh, Crazy Horse just went up to the council teepee where the elders were at discussing the situation, and he declared, you know, he handed back the shirt and he said, I'd rather be a plain warrior. I'm not an orator, I'm not a politician. By July of 1870, Red Cloud returned among the Lakota, and he was very much a changed man. He no longer wanted to fight because he had seen the power of the United States. Both he and Spotted Tail had been on this trip, and the trip had a lasting impact on their perception of Lakota chances of fighting against the United States. As author Terry Mort wrote in uh, a book entitled Thieves' Road, he wrote, It was an eye-opening visit for both, and if the object was to overawe the two chiefs with the size and might of the United States government, and indeed the white civilization, it apparently worked. Or, as a Lakota, a Lakota warrior who did not share Red Cloud's ideas put it, Red Cloud saw too much. Meaning, as Red Cloud as, uh, and Spotted Tail had seen the size and might of the United States, they had grown intimidated. They felt like, we don't really want to fight these guys no more. There are too many of them, they are too strong, let's figure out how we can get the best deal possible to work with them, but they have already won, basically. 
So they returned to the agencies, they accepted to live on reservations, and they realized also that many of the promises that had been made in the Fort Laramie Treaty had been verbal and were not in writing, they were not part of the actual text of the treaty. So they realized that they stood on considerably less solid ground than they thought. So that's the political situation among the Lakota at this time. Some people will take the Red Cloud route and try to live on reservations, start learning to farm, start essentially becoming dependent on the United States government, whereas others, such as Crazy Horse, will decide that they are going to fight to the end to live the old life. Now, by now, especially considering what happened with Black Buffalo Woman, his parents, uh, Crazy Horse's parents and some of his friends, push him to marry. They say, look, it's been too much trouble, maybe marriage will stabilize Crazy Horse, provide him some... So Crazy Horse agreed, so he did marry with Black Shoal soon afterwards. Wasn't exactly the most idyllic honeymoon, as you may imagine, as Crazy Horse was still recovering from being shot in the face, uh, all of these bad things were going on, but things were made much worse by some news that arrived within days of his wedding. Some warriors arrived in camp, bringing back the news that Crazy Horse's little brother, Little Hawk, had been killed in south-central Wyoming in a fight that different sources, some sources say he was killed by the Shoshone, some sources say he was killed by the Ute, some sources say he was killed by American settlers. It's possible a combination of the two since the Shoshone and some American settlers were working together at this time. But regardless, the news is that Crazy Horse's younger brother, who was 19 years old at this time, was killed in battle. So immediately, Crazy Horse and Black Shoal pack up their bags. They travel for over 150 miles. They recover his brother's body. They find the remains, and they bury the remains under stones. They then camp there by his brother's remains for the next nine days. And during this time, something really dark enters Crazy Horse's consciousness. Every time I think of this story, I picture a scene from the movie Legends of the Fall, which is one of those powerful, powerful cinematic scenes that the first time I ever watched it at the theater, it hit me so hard that even though I loved the movie, I could never watch it again. It was just kind of too intense in a way. And I don't know why, because I've seen, you know, a million movies that are pretty intense. But for some reason, this particular image hit me. What am I talking about? Well, there's a scene in Legends of the Fall where the character played by Brad Pitt, his brother, is killed during World War I. And news arrived that this happened. And so Brad Pitt's character goes off on this killing spree, hunting down German soldiers, killing them. That's not even the part that I'm thinking is the intense part. The intense part is when he comes back, he re-enters the American camp, and he's covered in blood, the blood of German soldiers, and he's covered in scalps that he has taken from them. And nobody touches him, kind of like everybody open up around him, letting this guy go. And I don't know, man, it's a powerful scene. And this basically is what happens with Crazy Horse right now. At this moment, he decides to go on a killing spree, much like the Brad Pitt character done in the movie. He looks for several 
isolated settlers throughout Wyoming stalk them and kill them. Similarly, there's a story that he also will find and kill four U.S. soldiers by stalking them and hunting them down. The latest book that I wrote, I wrote, I published four books. The fourth book I published was called The Not Afraid. There's a passage from this book that very much captures this vibe that I'm talking about, about this moment where Crazy Horse is kind of going crazy with grief and decide to go uh, to soothe his grief by hunting out his enemies. I'm going to read to you guys this passage because it captures in words that are probably more eloquent than what I can just throw out there on a whim. So let me read you this passage. Once a warrior loses any instinct for self-preservation, he switches his focus to one thing and one thing only, to destroy his enemy. His entire being becomes consumed with pure battle furor. Nothing else exists but the unshakable resolve to kill those who stand in his way. Without the natural desire to survive holding him back, the warrior gains powers unknown by regular human beings. He enters battle with the courage and strength that come from a complete lack of hope and fear. Think of Achilles from the Iliad, after the Trojans have the very bad idea of killing his best friend. The news of his death projects Achilles in a state of near madness. By the time he dons his armor and gathers his weapons, he's no longer Achilles. Grief has burned away his identity and his humanity. He's now the incarnation of a demon, whose only reason to exist is revenge. Losing everything he loved has given powers to do anything. Anything, that is, except what he wants most of all, the ability to bring his friend back. And so the only thing left for him to do, the only thing that will silence temporarily the hellish pain that's ripping him apart, is to gorge in an orgy of blood. When he enters battle, no one will be able to touch him. No one will be able to stop him. He's a force of nature bent on destruction. A monster, escaped from the nightmares of the god of war. Before meeting their gory deaths, the Trojans will only have time to curse themselves for the horror they have unleashed. And speaking of Achilles from the Iliad here, but I might as well use Crazy Horse as an example, because pretty much every word fits. As Crazy Horse's cousin, Flying Hawk, said, he killed enough to satisfy, and then he came home. Curiously enough, I mean, imagine Black Shoal, you know, here you are, you just marry this guy, and the first thing that happens is that you go on this stalking human hunting trip where he comes back covered in scalps every day. And yet, from Black Shoal's standpoint, she, she very much supported him every step of the way. Their marriage was, I mean, probably, from all the descriptions, it doesn't sound like it was the most passionate marriage in the world, but there was definitely friendship, there was definitely support. And besides support, something else was going on, because Black Shoal got pregnant very quickly, and so Crazy Horse was about to become a father in a few months. In the meantime, Crazy Horse and his wife joined the village under the leadership of this man named Big Road, and Black Shoal family was there with them as well, uh, in particular, one of her younger brothers, named Red Feather, idolized Crazy Horse, thought he was the greatest thing ever, 
And so Crazy Horse kind of started grooming him and teaching him stuff and paid him a lot of attention, which was probably a way for him to transfer the affection that he had had for Little Hawk to somebody who was actually still alive. So Red Feather will sort of take on uh, Little Hawk's role in Crazy Horse's life. At a council in 1870, a few leaders, including Big Road, Bad Wound, and Manafraid, proclaimed Crazy Horse as war chief for the Oglala. They gave him a war club with three knife blades stuck in it, and uh, in some way, you know, Crazy Horse was better suited for this role than for his previous role as shirt wearer, kind of having his more political role. This was more what he was born to do. He was more of a fighter than a politician. By now, oddly enough, one of the people who lived uh, next to Big Road's village was Black Twin, the same guy that we have seen earlier, was No Water's brother. So why could they now live next to each other and not kill each other? Because Black Twin and Crazy Horse actually shared some similar political views. Unlike No Water, Black Twin wanted to stay as far away from the white people as possible and he wanted to try to hold on to the old way of life. So this group of Oglala progressively moved further and further away from the Oglala who had decided to settle down on the reservation, and instead he start, they started moving north, closer to another subdivision of the Lakota, the Umpapa. The Umpapa were the um, subgroups of the Lakota. The, the most famous guy from the Umpapa will be Sitting Bull, uh, will play a key role, uh, really will be primarily Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull when merge as the symbols of Lakota resistance against American expansion. And Sitting Bull openly stated that the days of Red Cloud's leadership were done, that Red Cloud had seen too much in Washington. In Sitting Bull's words, he said that the Americans had, I quote, put bad medicine over Red Cloud's eyes, to make him see everything and anything that they please. So in other words, for those Lakota who still wanted the old way of life, Red Cloud clearly was not the man that they could turn to. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, on the other hand, probably made a much better fit. And now tragedy is going to visit Crazy Horse yet again. In this one occasion, he and with a few warriors and his mentor, High Backbone, decided to launch a raid against the Shoshone. On their way toward the Shoshone camp, they stopped at a place that the Lakota called Painted Cliffs. Painted Cliffs were places where the Lakota believed that designs and drawings would appear on the rock that were made by spirits that would foretell events that would take place in the future. And according to the story, what they saw there, they saw some markings indicating that things were going to go badly for them. So Crazy Horse took the hint and said, we need to turn back. This is not going to go well. High Backbone, on the other hand, was very much in favor of continuing on. The Shoshone had killed one of High Backbone's wives in the past, and that had given him a reason to always be kind of very aggressive when it came to fighting the Shoshone. So even in this case, he decided... We're going forward. I don't care what you guys say, we're going forward. Keep in mind, by the way, High Backbone was no spring chicken by this point. It's estimated he was probably about 59 years old. But he had a lot of charisma. He had been one of the greatest warriors of his generation, so when he say, let's go forward, nobody really dares to contradict him. 
it starts raining really heavily and the ground gets all muddy and stuff. So again, Crazy Horse thinks this is a bad idea, we shouldn't be doing it. But they end up attacking the camp anyway, shoot a few Shoshones, steal some horses and take off running. However, over 200 Shoshone warriors give chase. In the meantime, it begins to snow, making the going even slower. High backbone decide, I'm going to turn around and make a stand. Crazy Horse said, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Is uh, The horses can't stand and fight in this kind of slippery terrain. They are sinking down, so let's not do that. High backbone basically told Crazy Horse off. He said, you know, if you don't care about your reputation, then just go home already. I'll stay here and make it stand and fight. Crazy Horse tell him, this is just stupid. You know, you are just not thinking straight anymore. You know, what are you questioning my bravery? You know what it is. It's just that we are outnumbered, outgunned, and everything is bad for a fight. Why are we doing this? So they have kind of bad words toward each other here, but they do agree on a common plan that Crazy Horse, High Backbone, and a couple of other warriors will take turns uh, guarding the back of this group of fleeing Lakota warriors, shooting at the Shoshone before running back, joining the group, and then somebody else will stay back and they will take turns this way trying to slow down the Shoshone advance. Well, at one point when it's High Backbone turn to stay behind, he stayed a little too long until the Shoshone catch up with them, they shoot his horse, he fights them hand to hand, but eventually one of the other warriors were going back to, because he believed it was his turn, they see the Shoshone are hacking at something on the ground and quickly figure out the high backbone has been killed. The Shoshone recognized him and they knew that he was one of the greatest warriors among the Lakota, so they figure, okay, we have done enough, they stop giving chase and let the other Lakota go by. A few days later, Crazy Horse and Red Feather turn around, find the bones of their friend, High Backbone, which had by now had been mostly eaten by coyotes. And this is another moment in which Crazy Horse feels heavy grief hitting him hard. In the words of an informant about this, they say that Crazy Horse was beside himself with grief and rage. Crazy Horse thought death. So think about it, this is all happening in one year. The year 1870 was not a good year for Crazy Horse. First he got shot in the face, the woman he's in love with got to be taken back from her husband, uh, his brother got killed, his mentor got killed. You know, things definitely was not the best year of his life. One thing that, however, brought some light to Crazy Horse's life is that at some point around the year, the chronology is uncertain here, but somewhere around 1870, give or take a year or so, his daughter was born. Uh, her name was to be Koki Papi, which meant they are afraid of her, which was very much a kind of more of a warrior name than a cute little girl's name, but they were talking about Crazy Horse here, so no, no surprise that this would be his daughter's name. And one thing that surprises a few people who thought that Crazy Horse was always this stern, serious guy is that he's crazy about his daughter. He loves her very, very much. He had named her actually afraid of her in honor of his, uh, of his aunt, of his uh, mom's sister, who was one of the women who had raised him. The story about his aunt is that in one occasion, 
Her husband tried to beat her up and she just turned around, beat him up. So everybody renamed her afraid of her because she was, according to everybody, she was a pretty scary woman. She was big and strong. After this incident, lived on her own. She hunted for herself. She was very much self-reliant and independent. And Crazy Horse admired this. And she, he said he wanted the same for his daughter, not to be dependent on the government agency, not to be dependent on anybody, but be her own person. One incident shows that, despite having accepted No Water's horses and having sent Black Buffalo Woman's back, Crazy Horse had not exactly forgot or forgave what had happened. So in one incident, when they are close to modern-day Yellowstone National Park, he and a friend were out hunting buffalo, and they saw another Lakota, and... When Crazy Horse asked, you know, who was that guy? I uh, saw, so, you know, this other Lakota is out here. And then when he saw us, he jumped on a horse and fled away. Who was him? And he's told that this was no water. So without thinking too many times, Crazy Horse up on his horse and quickly give chase. And no water just ran for his life because he knew that if Crazy Horse caught up, he would kill him. And he just managed to escape by diving his horse into a river, taking this daring, crazy chance, and eventually managed to get out. But from this point forward, No Water will never try to visit the northern Lakota, will very much stay on the reservation close to Red Cloud. And No Water also is not going to forget this and will become one of Crazy Horse's lifelong enemies. Now, a few events happened by 1872 which will bring again the Lakota and the United States on a collision course. Specifically what had happened was that there were plans for a northern railroad to link the Great Lakes to the Pacific Northwest. And this meant that they would travel straight through Lakota land and their hunting ground. The military was very supportive of this idea. I'm going to read you a few quotes from some of the key military figures of this time all emphasize the need to support the building of the railroads. General Sherman, in a speech to Congress, stated, The railroad is a national enterprise, and we are forced to protect the man during its survey and construction, through probably the most warlike nation of Indians on this continent. We'll fight for every foot of the line. Sherman also stated, it is our duty, and it shall be my study, to make the progress of construction of the Great Pacific Railroads as safe as possible. George Armstrong Custer, an officer who will become legendary because of his fights with the Lakota, also stated, The experience of the past has shown that no one measures so quickly and effectively frees a country from the horrors and devastations of Indian wars, as the building and successful operation of a railroad through the region overrun. And in the most chilling quote of all, Sherman again in a letter to another General Sheridan, he said, The Indians will be hostile to an extreme degree, yet I think our interest is to favor the undertaking of the Northern Pacific Railroad, as it will help to bring the Indian problem to a final solution. Now check out the language here. Final solution, now that's a pretty, considering that the word final solution will later be used by the Nazi in their extermination of Jewish people, 
this quote has a bit of a chilling effect. Now, that's probably not the way Sherman meant it, but then again, considering that Sherman had openly advocated genocide of the Lakota, maybe he did, hard to tell. In any case, it's a rather powerful quote. So in 1872, some of the surveyors for the Northern Pacific Railroad were exploring the area of the Yellowstone. So Sitting Bull told anyone who would listen that he was, they had to try to stop them. During this time, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse had built a powerful alliance. They clearly emerged as the key leaders of the Lakota were hostile to American expansion. Typically, Sitting Bull sat in the place of honor, and uh, Crazy Horse was his second in command, sitting next to him, which in many ways worked perfectly, because Sitting Bull had been a great warrior, but he was also a powerful diplomatic and political leader, whereas Crazy Horse didn't really want to talk much, he was a man of action, and so he liked his role as second-in-command. What they tried to do was to create a united front among the northern Lakota, what they would call the Waziata Oyate, the northern nation, to counter the Americans. So in the summer of 1872, they had a little showdown with the soldiers that were guarding the advance of the northern Pacific surveyors. And in this one particular face-off that they had, I mean, there was no big battle or anything, but there were a couple of pretty cool moments. One in which Crazy Horse did his usual daring charge, where he just ran along the wet length of the enemy line, drawing fire from them, and managing to come back unhurt. He was either really lucky or he did something right, or, or maybe he did have some serious... Pro who knows what was going on, but in any case. But the guy who will do the most daring action of the day will actually be Sitting Bull. At some point in the future, when you guys are not sick to hearing about native history anymore, I probably will do a series about Sitting Bull. So you'll probably hear this story yet again, but it's such a cool story. Sitting Bull, in a show of bravery, decided to walk toward the soldiers, and he reached the area well past the point where the soldiers' guns could find a range. You know, he was within the kill zone. He was within range of the enemy soldiers. And he sat down, pulled out his pipe. In the meantime, soldiers are trying to sharpshoot him and just trying to put a bullet in his hand, so bullets are flying everywhere. And very slowly, Sitting Bull pulls out his pipe, turns around toward the other Lakota who are looking at him like, the hell are you doing? Are you crazy? And he say, anybody want to come smoke with me? And so four warriors decide that they also want to show how brave they are and they go sit next to Sitting Bull. And, you know, one of them said something that was really funny. He said, I never smoked a pipe as fast in my life. We were just puffing crazy because we just couldn't wait to get back among our people. In the meantime, bullets are flying all around. And Sitting Bull makes this show of not caring about the soldiers and very slowly then clean his pipe and put it away and walk back toward the Lakota lines. This is classic Lakota bravado. You know, it accomplished nothing from a practical standpoint. It was a way to show bravery. In any case, few casualties on both sides, no big battle. Uh, the only outcome is to show the Northern Pacific Railroad that if they want to go through this area, they would have to fight for it because the Lakota are not going to just let them through. General Sherman, in the meantime, assured Congress that in the following year, 
he would provide the muscle to allow the captains of the railroad to lay the tracks for economic development. Now, with 1873, begins a section that's somewhat difficult for me to get into, because the fact is I plan to cover the events that I'm going to mention in the next few minutes in much more depth in a different series of episodes. At some point this year, either right after the end of the whole Crazy Horse series, or in case I decide to give a break to people who are not into the story as much, I'll cover a few other episodes first and then I'll get into At some point in 2017, I will be covering all the lead-up to the Little Bighorn Battle and the battle itself, the story of George Armstrong Custer and everything else. So right now, the events that are left to tell in this particular episode of the Crazy Horse story are going to be covered really only in the measure as they affect Crazy Horse. I'm going to kind of ignore the deeper significance of some of them. I'm going to gloss over some of this tale just because I don't want to turn this Crazy Horse series in a 12-episode series or something, which is what would happen if I really got into these events. But having said that, let me give you at least the basics of the events taking place between 1873 and 1876. So in 1873, the railroads are back in the Yellowstone, and this time sent to protect them is uh, an officer whose name becomes legendary in the history of the West, George Armstrong Custer. We're going to dedicate a lot of attention to Custer when I do the Little Big Horn series. He was a wild guy, no doubt about it. He was uh, he very much chased glory. He had this romantic imagination. He, he lived for battle in many ways. He lived for gaining glory through acts of bravery. In many ways, he shared some of the very same priorities that some Lakota warriors had. But regardless, the first encounter between Custer and Crazy Horse is somewhat uneventful. The native side, the Lakota under Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, will try to uh, lure Custer soldiers into an ambush. Um, they will almost succeed, but kind of some of the warriors move too quick and give away the ambush. So there is a lot of maneuvering back and forth, but relatively few casualties on both sides. By the time it's all done and over with, the only big legacy of this encounter, which from a military standpoint, it was really not much to write about, but it does have a big impact because when the newspapers pick up the story, you know, yes, Custer comes across as this great noble Indian fighter keeping a huge hostile force at bay, but this story worries the investors, the people who had put money into the development of the Northern Pacific Railroad. Because it became clear that the Lakota were not just going to roll over and let the railroad go through. They were going to fight at every step of the way. And fighting at every step of the way meant probably delays, more money. It meant that their investment was not as secure as they had hoped it would be. So, you know, everybody gets it in the U.S. You know, eventually the Lakota will be defeated. But... When you are counting on making your money back soon, eventually is not a reassuring word. You want your money now. So there's already some fear. You know, some of the investors are beginning to have second thoughts. And to make matters worse, in 1873, 
During the fall, what happens is an economic recession hit the United States. Many banks will close. Many businesses will also be ruined. And the Northern Pacific Railroad end up going bankrupt. Even without a big battle, the Lakota in some ways scored a success because they were able, you know, it wasn't they were able, it, their presence was one of the contributing factors that helped in slowing down the progression of the railroad. It seems that almost too long has gone by without some tragedy dropping by into Crazy Horse's life. So, as it has done by now with scary regularity, tragedy shows up yet again in Crazy Horse's life. When he rejoins his village, he finds out that his daughter, they are afraid of her, has died. Some sources say of cholera, some sources say of tuberculosis. Regardless, his daughter is dead. And so, he, when he receives the news, he goes into very heavy sorrow. He cuts his hair. He asks a friend to take him where she had been put up on a scaffold. The Lakota did not practice burial of the body underneath the ground. They would put up the body on a scaffold, and that's how they would uh, practice their funerary ritual. In any case, so Crazy Horse and this guy ride back over 70 miles to the place where her body was, and Crazy Horse climbed up onto the platform and stayed laying right next to the corpse of his daughter for the next three days. This was a rather scary scenario because there were crow war parties going up and down everywhere all around them and they could have found them and he could have become easy prey for a larger number of crows. But Crazy Horse just didn't care. He was too deep into his grief to care about anything else even his own uh, survival instinct was gone out the window and he just stayed there by his daughter's body for the next three days by the time he came back home he and his wife gave away everything they owned in a big giveaway um, that characterized their mourning in the meantime by 1874 General Sheridan had figured out what he could do to finally start up a war again. Specifically, rumors of the presence of gold in the Black Hills had been around for a long time. And now Sheridan figured that these very rumors could give him the excuse to start up a war again, to bypass Congress, to bypass some of what the politicians wanted, and finally have another showdown with the Lakota. The idea being, if gold is discovered in the Black Hills, thousands of American settlers are going to flood the Black Hills, just coming in there digging for gold. This is going to put the government in a really awkward position, since the government supposedly has a knowledge that this is Lakota land, and that it's theirs forever. So it will be actually their job to try to kick out their own citizens from reaching, you know, from the Black Hills. So Sheridan figure, well, let's go try. So he sends an expedition under George Armstrong Custer to the Black Hills. Custer managed to get through undetected and uh, discover, indeed, the presence of gold in the Black Hills. This move is something that even some American soldiers found uh, less than honorable. Uh, private, by the name of, last name of Ewart, who had served under Benteen, 
He said that by authorizing the expedition, the government, I quote, forgot its honor, forgot the sacred treaty in force between itself and the Dakota Sioux, forgot its integrity. This is from the mouth of a U.S. soldier, so right there you get the feeling that what Sheridan is doing is a trick that's considered dirty even by some of his own people. Now, the fact that Sheridan was able to push this expedition through, to have it authorized, despite the protest of some of the people advocating a peace policy toward American Indians, suggests that maybe some people in the Grant administration were ready to abandon the peace policy and uh, were, if nothing else, giving a silent blessing to Sheridan's plans. In the words of Black Elk, in regards to uh, the Custer expedition, he had no right to go there, because all that country was ours. Later I learned that Long Hair, which incidentally was the name that the Lakota gave to Custer, since he, unusually for a soldier, he let his hair grow long. In any case, later I learned that Long Hair had found much of the yellow metal that makes the Washikus crazy, and that this is what made bad trouble, just as it did before when the hundred were wiped out. This was a reference, of course, to the, um, uh, the Fetterman fight. So immediately, the second caster get out of the Black Hills with news of gold, miners begin pouring illegally into the Black Hills. And now the army finds itself in the odd position of having to kick them out. But of course, A, they are not too happy about using their energy against American citizens in order to protect Indian rights. And B, even if they wanted to do it, it would be difficult to seal off the Black Hills, which are, they can be entered from many different directions. They are a huge chunk of land. You know, it would not be an easy task regardless. So by now, the government turns to the Lakota. And the message that they give them is basically, oops, sorry about that. We didn't mean this to happen, but it happened. Not much we can do about it. Now, yeah, we know that it's not right that our settlers are coming into your lands, but we can't really do much about it. So why don't we do this? To make everybody happy, why don't you just sell us the Black Hills? Okay, name your price, we'll figure out what we need to pay you. You sell us the Black Hills, and so everybody's happy. There were some Lakota leaders who were indeed willing to sell. Specifically, some of the guys on the reservation, the Red Cloud, the Spotted Tail, and a few others, agreed to meet with government representatives for selling the Black Hills. Now, some of the other people who were not on the reservation, the Crazy Horse, uh, Sitting Bull, and others, were just disgusted with the readiness of these chiefs to sell the Black Hills. They considered the Black Hills sacred and were horrified by the willingness to sell on the part of Red Cloud and Spotted Tail. Now, Red Cloud sent some messengers to Crazy Horse Camp, to Sitting Bull's Camp, and so on, saying, hey, why don't you come in? You know, the government is uh, asking us to sell. Uh, you guys should come in too, so we can all get to vote on this and decide what to do. Some Lakota were so mad that this would even be considered, that they wanted to kill Red Cloud messengers. But Crazy Horse actually stepped up to protect them. He said, these people are guests. They are messengers, you know. We cannot have these. So he turned to the people who were ready to kill Red Clown's messenger and said, my friends, whoever attempts to murder these people 
will have to fight me too. So even though he despised the Red Cloud, even though he was disgusted with this proposal, he was not going to have guests in his camp being killed. Other Lakota responded with similar hostility to uh, the invitation to come in. A warrior by the name of Black Shield responded to the invitation to meet with the commission regarding the Black Hills by saying, all those that are in favor of selling their land from their children, let them go. Contrast these with the words of reservation chiefs such as Potted Tail, who stated, as long as we live on desert, we will expect pay. I want to live on the interest of my money. So Spotted Tail was taking a... I mean, it sounds awful when I put it this way, and in some ways because I think it is, but at the same time you have to understand where people like Spotted Tail or Red Cloud were coming from. They figure fighting against the US government is an hopeless fight, so let's take the best deal we can get and live with that. Which, of course, because is a position based on compromise, it sounds a lot less noble than the crazy horse sitting bull attitude. Then again, maybe it was more realistic. I don't know, it's hard to tell. But in any case, I don't want to paint these guys as complete sellouts um, because clearly they had their own reasons for acting this way. Again, for the sake of contrast, consider the difference that the Spotted Tail and Red Cloud how their positions was infinitely different from Crazy Horse. Uh, Guy Dullknife states, One time, the white people wanted to buy our Black Hills. Some of the chiefs agreed, and they signed the papers. But Crazy Horse didn't want to. He would not agree to sell any part of the Black Hills. He said to tell the soldiers, You cannot sell the land upon which the people walk. So Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, most of the hostiles don't bother showing up. The commissioner sits down with Red Cloud, Spotted Tail and the others and they offer $6 million. Red Cloud and Spotted Tail consider the offer ridiculously low for how important the Black Hills are, how much gold there may be. So they are essentially haggling over price. While this is going on, 300 warriors coming from the camps of Sitting Bull and, Red and Crazy Horse arrive onto the scene, led by a warrior named Little Big Man. And they show up in their faces painted for battle, singing a song that delivers a chilling message to the commissioners and to the Lakota who are debating about selling the Black Hills. The lyrics to the song go something like this. The Black Hills is my land, and I love it. And whoever interferes, will hear this gun. So they openly threaten violence against anybody signing to sell the Black Hills. They tell the chiefs that if they dare to sign, they are going to shoot them dead right there and then. So in this climate, negotiations break down. The commissioners get back to Washington, say, sorry, the Lakota are not going to sell. If you want to take the Black Hills, you're going to have to take it by force because it's not going to happen through diplomacy. In the meantime, Crazy Horse went on another vision quest, and it was not a happy one. By the time he came back from his vision quest, he did have a vision, but it was not the vision he wanted to have. He told his father and his friend, Touch the Clouds, that what he saw was the future, and he saw the buffaloes being wiped out. 
He saw the Lakota living in poverty on reservations. He saw essentially a future in which the Lakota had no hope, where everything they were fighting for would be lost. And yet despite this, Crezior's yet again voice is determination to keep fighting regardless of the outcome. Yes, there may be no future, but we have a present right now. And until the day when this ugly future materializes, I'm going to keep fighting with everything I got. In many ways, this is a perfect representation of Lakota warrior philosophy. You know, the very battle cry, the very idea of going into battle by screaming, Hokahe, you know, today's a good day to die, let's go. It's capturing uh, Crezior's vision and his response to it. In the face of hopelessness, Crezior's vows to keep fighting on. And, you know, it's one thing to fight when you have hopes of success. It's not easy. Most people aren't able to do it. But it's one thing to be able to be brave when you do have hope. You think that things can work out. It's a whole other story to fight when you have zero hope of success. That reveals a rather different kind of mindset, a, a very unusual kind. So after the failure of the Black Hills Commission, President Grant called Sheridan, General Sheridan to attend an emergency session at the White House. On November 3rd, they had a secret meeting with the Secretaries of War, Secretary of the Interior, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, General Crook, Sheridan, the President, all of them. And the course of action that they decided to take was to stop trying to evict the miners from the Black Hills. Why would they do it? Because once the miners realized that the army wasn't even making a token effort to kick them out, even more would be coming into the Black Hills. This would cause the Lakota and Cheyenne to attack them in retaliation, and this would then be used by the United States to justify starting a war against them. I'm going to go a lot more when I talk about the Little Big Horn, about the behind-the-scenes machinations that took place, but for now, let's just leave it at that. So they are looking for a justification to start a war. They give an ultimatum saying, January 31st, 1876 is your deadline. You can turn yourself in at the reservations where you'll be considered hostile and will start a war against you. So by March, American troops are on the move to start a second round of warfare against the Lakota and Cheyenne. In March, some American troops under Crook uh, find a Lakota and Cheyenne village, they attack it. They are successful in burning down a lot of the tipis. There are relatively few casualties on both sides. The soldiers are able to take vast number of horses, but in the following hours, some Lakota stalk them back and are able to steal back over 400 horses. So overall, the whole thing, the results in, it's not exactly, there's no big outcome, but it is the first, the opening salvo in this new round of warfare in 1876. The Cheyenne and Lakota will, finding themselves without teepees in winter, they quickly look for another camp, they find Crazy Horse's camp, and Crazy Horse will welcome them, saying, I am glad you have come. We're going to fight the white man again. Quickly, the people in Crazy Horse camp ran out of the food that they were giving out to the Cheyenne and Lakota refugee. 
So these guys will move on to sitting bulls camp, who will keep them fed for the next few weeks. In this case, both Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull demonstrated due generosity by asking older people to double up with relatives and instead give their teepees to the refugees who had lost everything. And there were a few visitors in Crazy Horse's camp from Red Cloud Agency. And when they came back, they reported to Red Cloud that Crazy Horse had vowed he would now strike a blow that would be remembered by those who invaded his country. So, everybody is getting ready for action here. Nicholas Black Elk in Black Elk Speaks wrote, These people were in their own country and were doing no harm. They only wanted to be let alone. We did not hear of this until quite a while afterwards. But at the soldiers' town, we heard enough to make us paint our places black. What Black Elk is talking about is he was with some relatives on the reservations. That's what he talks about when he refers to the soldiers' town. And when he say weird enough to make us paint our faces black, black was the traditional color that many Lakota would use to paint their faces when going to war. So this means that even some of the reservation Indians were ready to abandon the reservation and join the war effort alongside with Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. Black Elk's own aunt gave him a pistol, saying, you have now become a man and... Here is a gun, because I expect you to do what a man needs to do in this scenario. This sentence may not seem that wild, unless you remember the Black Elk had just turned 13 years old. So this was literally every male among the Lakota was now expected to do what they had to do in the upcoming battle. Now in many ways everybody knows that the outcome of this war is already decided before a single shot is fired. Nobody has any expectation of everlasting victory on the Indian side. There are only a few thousand free Lakota and Cheyenne, and they are going to be fighting against the massive power that the United States can bring to the battle. So obviously this war is not going to end well for them. But in some way, even some of the Lakota and Cheyenne on the reservation, they felt that this would be their last chance to taste the old life. Yes, maybe eventually things would turn sour, maybe they would be defeated, but they weren't defeated yet. And in this summer, they could still go out and fight as Lakota and Cheyenne warriors, they could still go out on a buffalo hunt, they could still live the way they wanted to live. So the messengers from the Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull camp went to the reservations, announcing to all the natives there, it is war and inviting anybody who wanted to join with them. And many did, including Red Cloud's own son, Jack Red Cloud, who uh, carried this Winchester that had been given to his father during a trip to Washington. And yet he was going to use this gun against the Americans in this case. Black Elk and his family rejoined with Crazy Orson, who was one of their relatives, and as Black Elk stated, Everyone rejoiced to have us back there. On June 4th, the Lakota gathered together for a Sundance ceremony. The Sundance is a highly complex ritual, and I don't want to do it a disservice by trying to explain it in just a few minutes. Suffice to say that during the course of the Sundance, uh, Sitting Bull went, after taking part in a sweat lodge ceremony, 
he stepped up in the middle of the Sundance ceremony. And part of the Sundance is a ritual of sacrifice, where you literally shed blood to pray for the welfare of your whole tribe, to pray in some way to the welfare of the entire earth. But in this case, a sitting bull sat down, shed blood by cuts that were made on both of his arms, and he danced while gazing at the sun. He eventually passed out, and by the time he came back to, he said that he had a vision, that he saw soldiers falling into the Indian camp, that they would attack, but the Lakota and Cheyenne would win the upcoming battle. So in summer 1876, the army sent soldiers in three different columns trying to execute a giant pincher move to trap the Lakota between these three different groups of the army. Now the first encounter will be an epic battle and I really am not going to do it justice here but I promise that I'll tackle it in much more details in later episodes. I'm just going to keep it super quick for right now. Basically what happens is that some soldiers are spotted by the Lakota scouts miles away, about 30-40 miles away from their camp. But they know that 30-40 miles are not that much. You know, in a day or two they can catch up and the soldiers could be knocking at their teepees. The elders in the camp were in favor of waiting. You know, let's wait and see if they are going to attack us or not. But many of the young warriors wanted to go forward and go fight against the troops under Crook. So what they decided to do is they asked Crazy Horse to join in, to lead them, and many of them, they just rode all through the night, over 30 miles, arrived where Crook was camped in the morning. Keep in mind, Crook had with him about 1,300 men, which was more than the Lakota had with them in this moment. There were probably about 750, 800 warriors with Crazy Horse. The plan was to try to ambush Crook's men, but Crook with him had many crow scouts who saw them ahead of time. So the battle began with the crow scouts fighting off against the Lakota and Cheyenne, and in many ways the crows have saved the soldiers here, because had they not seen the Lakota in time, the Lakota may have had a chance to just swoop down on the soldiers quickly. So the crows were very helpful in this. So the battle begins, and it's reported that Crazy Horse told this man, Hold on, my friends. Be strong. Remember the helpless one. This is a good day to die. So right after this, Crazy Horse tried to isolate a group of soldiers. There was a lot of maneuvering back and forth. Um, soldiers trying to shoot down Crazy Horse and this man. Crazy Horse and this guy shooting back at the soldier. The fight lasted through a good chunk of the day, until eventually the Indian side broke it off and retreated. This allowed to, for Crook to claim victory, but as we're going to say, this is not really a victory for the soldiers. The casualties were actually probably about twice as much among the soldiers than among the natives, but more important than the casualties, which were relatively limited, we're talking about at most the dozens of men on each side, more importantly is what happens after this battle. Crook is going to decide that he has seen enough of fighting Indians, he is going to turn around, go back to the Yellowstone, and spend the next few weeks fishing by the river, completely forgetting about his role 
in the pincer move that they were trying to execute. So through this battle, the Lakota and Cheyenne had effectively neutralized one of the three branches that were moving against them. A few days later, at the end of June 1876, the big battle that will be forever remembered in the history of the West took place between the U.S. Army and the Lakota and Cheyenne. This is the battle that involved all the contingent of the soldier under the leadership of Custer. Custer was thrilled when his scouts reported that they had found the Indian camp. This was the camp. I mean, all of the Lakota and Cheyenne who were not on reservations had gathered together in one giant camp, probably the biggest that they had maybe ever had in Lakota Cheyenne history in one place at one time. They had all gathered together in expectation that the soldiers would attack so they should be united. And they could really only do it for a few days because the number of uh, the game that these numbers of people camp together would consume, the amount of firewood they would consume, this was humongous, way more than was sustainable to on, for long term for nomadic hunting and gathering people such as the Lakota and Cheyenne. But for a few days they were able to do it and Custer has the bad luck of deciding to attack well, bad luck or also bad judgment, depending on how you want to interpret it, but he will come upon this camp and attack it when this camp is at the strongest, when there are thousands of people in camp. Estimates vary regarding exactly how many thousand, but quite a few suggest that it may have been in the neighborhood of 8,000 people, which meant at least 3,000 fighting men, way more than Custer had ever faced until this point. In the Indian Wars. So what Custer does is divide up his, um, his soldiers in different companies, one under the leadership of an officer by the name of Reno was to attack from one side of the camp, while Custer would go on a different side trying to attack the camp from two ends at the same time. As it turns out, Reno attacks first. Realizing that the camp was larger than they had expected, he orders a skirmish line about 600 yards from the edge of the camp. Some of the natives were caught by surprise by the arrival of the soldiers. They did not see Custer and his men ahead of time. So bullets are flying, everybody in the Indian camp is freaking out, scared, not knowing what's going on, how many soldiers are out there. Some of the warriors are going to rush to meet them to block the movements of Reno and his men. While this is going on, Crazy Horse hears the bullets flying, hears the sounds of battle, but it takes an extremely slow time to prepare. He takes it very easy, slowly painting his whole body yellow, putting these dots of white according to his vision. He did all these ritual preparations, putting his feather in the hair, putting an eagle bone whistle around his neck, doing all these things of how he wanted to be ready for this battle. Some of his friends are, they are waiting, they're all waiting outside the teepee, they're like, come on man, you know, battle is going on, let's go already. But you know, nobody dares to say that to Crazy Horse. Everybody is just itching for a chance to follow Crazy Horse into battle. He finally walks out of his teepee with a Winchester gun in one hand, a stone-headed war club in the other, cartridge belt buckled at his waist and 
after painting his horse, after doing all this ritual preparation, Crazy Horse finally joins the battle. Black Elk, who was in the camp at this time, heard the noise of the Oglala horses coming, and here is his account of what happens. He said, Then another cry went up out in the dust. Crazy Horse is coming, Crazy Horse is coming. Off toward the west and the north, they were yelling, Hokahay, like a big wind roaring and making the tremolo, and you could hear eaglebone whistles screaming. Crazy Horse told this man, Come on, die with me, it's a good day to die, cowards to the rear. So this charge led by Crazy Horse overwhelmed Rino and this man who decided to turn around and flee. So they ran off, crossed the Little Bighorn River, and while they were crossing, Crazy Horse and this man were hot on their tail, so this big huge fight took place in the middle of the river. In the words of Flying Hawk, Crazy Horse was ahead of all, and he killed a lot of them with his war club. He pulled them off their horses when they tried to get across the river where the bank was steep. Kicking Bear was right beside him, and he killed many in the water. All in all, Reno lost about 40 soldiers in this fight, while there were about 11 Lakota and Cheyenne warriors who were killed, plus a few women and kids as well. Now, while this was going on, they barely had time to celebrate, yeah, we beat the soldiers, when Crazy Horse turned around and saw American troops two miles away at the other end of the village. So he turned his horse around and rushed across the village to reach the other end to see what was going on with these soldiers far away. In the meantime, Custer had further divided up his forces in separate wings. By now, he still felt that the battle wasn't lost, because he was really just across the river, less than half a mile away from where many of the women and kids who had fled the battle had gone. So the way he saw it was, all I have to do is cross the river, capture the women and kids, and then use them as human shields so that the Lakota and Cheyenne warriors will not dare to shoot on us if we hold as captives their women and kids. This tactic had worked for him in the past in a previous fight with the Cheyenne, he figured it could work again. Some of his men, it's debated whether he was among them or it was a different column, we're not exactly sure, but some of his men do make a run for it, try to cross the river. But just a few young Cheyenne and old men, because really nobody was left in camp, you know, all the warriors had gone off to fight Reno, there are really only kind of young people and old men who are left in the camp, they pick up their guns and they snipe at Custer's men to try to block them. They are successful in slowing them down long enough to give time to the warriors to come from the other side of camp to join forces and try to stop Custer. In the meantime, women and kids are running for their lives, screaming and fleeing. Custer sees them run away and he has his blood boil because he knows that the key to victory is to capture them. The natives also split their forces in two. One was to block Custer from reaching the women and kids, and one was to attack him from the back. Uh, a leader by the name of Crow King led the attacking force. Crazy Horse for a while was there to protect the women and kids. And eventually he crossed the river to try to pin Custer in between Crow King's man and his own. A Lakota warrior by the name of Short Bull 
says the following. He says about Crazy Horse. I saw him on his pinto pony, leading his men across the ford. He was the first man to cross the river. I saw he had the business well in hand. So Crazy Horse dismounts his horse, passes it to his cousin, Flying Hawk, and begins to snipe at the soldiers from far away. According to Flying Hawk, each shot dropped a soldier from the saddle. In his words, he shot them as fast as he could load his gun. They fell off their horses as fast as he could shoot. Now, let's be real here. Is it possible that there's a bit of hyperbole in Flying Hawk's description? Likely. You know, this idea that he's taking a shot and each time he drops a soldier. Well, I mean, I'm sure he was good with the gun, but this seems... But who knows? Again, I wasn't there, so I'm just I'm gonna leave the primary source as is without comment whether this is exactly true or not. Nobody will ever know, really. What Crazy Horse was doing was to inviting other Lakota and Cheyenne who joined him to just snipe from far away to weaken the soldiers before they would start the charge. Another Lakota warrior by the name of White Bull was getting impatient with Crazy Horse long-range sniping, and he wanted to charge. But Crazy Hole felt that the right wing had to be neutralized first before a charge could place. Eventually, White Bull and Crazy Horse did lead a charge, trying to break the soldiers in two, trying to separate one group from the next, and they were successful at this. In the words of an Arapaho warrior named Waterman, Crazy Horse the Sioux chief, was the bravest man I ever saw. He rode closest to the soldiers, yelling to his warriors. All the soldiers were shooting at him, but he was never hit. In the meantime, we have about 20 Lakota and Cheyenne warriors, members of warrior societies known respectively as the Crazy Dogs and the Strong Heart Society, had pledged to die in defense of the people. So they decided, you know, the voice went up, there was a herald announced that what he referred to as the suicide boys would lead the charge against the soldiers. So by now, fighting is boiling down to hand-to-hand, -to -hand. the long-distance fighting is over, the natives are charging into the soldiers' rank, Crazy Horse is using his war club in the fight, he eventually ended up chasing a fleeing soldier over half a mile and killing him. By probably 5, 5.30 in the afternoon, it was all over. All the men under Custer had been overwhelmed, and every single one of them had been killed. The women promptly turned around and walked the battlefield, mutilating the soldiers who had come to either kill or capture them a few minutes earlier, so the women vented their frustration by mutilating their bodies. All in all, the soldiers had lost almost 300 people in this fight. It's unclear how many natives died during the battle, but probably a lot less. Regardless, this was one of the biggest victories that not only the Lakota and Cheyenne, but any American Indian tribe had won against the U.S. Army. And Crazy Horse had played a key role into this. Lieutenant Clark, who later interviewed many of the natives after the end of the war, wrote that this battle at the Little Bighorn, which incidentally, if I didn't mention earlier, is located in modern-day Montana. Uh, back to Lieutenant Clark, quote, he said, 
it brought Crazy Horse more prominently before all the Indians than anyone else. Before this, he had a great reputation. In it, he gained a greater prestige than any other Indian in the camp. Crazy Horse by now was such a symbol of resistance that many of the Cheyenne would rather follow him than their own leaders, which says a lot about his charisma since most tribal warriors usually stuck to their own usual leaders. The combination of his luck in fighting, his skill in fighting, his generosity in letting other people count coup, his ability to usually get results with minimal casualties, anytime bullets started flying, you want to be next to Crazy Horse. Quickly afterwards, the camp had to break up. It was simply too big to last. This moment, following the Battle of the Little Bighorn, is the beginning of the end for the Lakota. The Little Bighorn had been the swan song of the Lakota nation. This was their last major triumph. And yet, despite it, the old way of life was living on borrowed time. It was just a matter of time before things would turn sour, and they were about to turn sour. News of Custer's defeat reached the rest of the United States in the midst of the celebration for the 100-year anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. So many Americans were shocked. You know, They were busy patting themselves on the back, saying what a great and powerful nation the United States has become over the span of a 100 years. And now news arrived that the American army was crushed by what most Americans consider backward Stone Age people. Clearly, the cry for revenge went up quickly, and Congress would end up being forced to open up the purse and throw in all the money they could to trying to crush the Lakota. You know, crushing the Lakota became a national priority payback was coming and it would be really ugly when it comes. If the life of Crazy Horse is a tragedy, the final dramatic act is about to begin.